Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening. Surprise. We, okay, Hiroki, you got to repeat that again. We're going to start the show with that. <laughs> no, I, you guys. I mean look coming from a coming from tech I, I gotta say i've i've actually seen more diversity in clinical research than i was expecting and far more than i ever experienced when i was at you know big tech companies that being said though you know whenever you look at the the tops and the leaders of companies like yeah then it's all out the door right then it's all old white men but like <laughs> at least i think on the entry level you get it's really nice because I think you get a lot of people who are super passionate about healthcare and, and that's actually a universal, that's a universal feeling. So um, I'm glad know, you brought that nice. up. I mean, it's a great way to start this, the, this episode is not really going to be about diversity. I mean, it can be, if we go that, that route, it's really going to be about tech and about research because I have this saying in our industry, you can predict, it's very easy to predict the future of clinical research. You just look at any other industry and what they've innovated and it's going to come in research too. And like, we're going to people like me and Brad and Robert are going to complain or maybe cheer it on or whatever, be neutral, but it's going to come. And that's just the way our industry is very slow. Why is it that way, Robert? And then I'll introduce our two guests. Thank you, Robert, for being the co-host on today's show, by the way. Oh, thanks again. It's always becoming uh, a regular thing for you. It man. really is. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's just always, it's always a great chat to be here and, and things like that. So I just think, you know, adoption is, is, is the problem. I mean, you know, it's, it's teaching old dogs new tricks, right? Like Hiroki mentioned, you know, those old, I mean, like it, it's really, those are the decision makers, you know? And they've, they've been in this industry. You always hear, I have 30 years experience, 28 years experience, 25 years experience. Well, like, you know what guys, I appreciate your tenure, but they got to go. And I, and I hate, and I'm sorry for saying this, like whoever might be watching this video, like, who are you? Well, honestly, I mean, how do we innovate the industry with tech and change the paradigm that frustrates all of us every single day? 
until we get decision makers that are just in a different mindset that are tech savvy that grew up with the invent of of you know text messaging right social media like these guys don't use that stuff they don't understand it you know what i mean so i think that's the main driving reason dan and you know in addition there's always that cost prohibitive to entering you know the tech market right when something's new to market a new concept is there look at decentralized trials right like everybody what does that even mean you know there's so many interpretations of dct and i love that meme that brad uh you know shout out to brad that he posted on friday say it again say it again you know like we're all tired of hearing this because like what does it mean there's so many interpretations of it but it is insanely, insanely expensive. I mean, I can tell you from a sponsor perspective, you know, we reached out to a leading DCT company and they, you know, said that they can, you know, produce X amount of patients and the cost per patient was over 80K, Dan. Um, when when yeah. the normal sites are making like, you know, 20K brick and mortar, right? So you're talking four times the amount and you're paying for these costs of, you know, traveling nurses and mobile labs and mobile imaging units. And, you know, it, it's this whole rigmarole, mobile coordinators, mobile nurses, and, you know, all this telehealth technology. It's just, you know, I think it all comes down to stakeholders. Yeah. And perfect segue to introduce our two guests. Um, they're outsiders, more or less. I mean, they've been studying clinical research uh, for a little bit, but they come from Microsoft and they come from the world of tech and they actually have cool stories they can share from Microsoft and how innovation occurs. And they know enough about clinical research now to have to an be opinion. dangerous. Yeah. To be dangerous. <laughs> to at least have an opinion on like inefficiencies and people's trepidations. I mean, I brought it up in our call privately. Like when I refinanced my, my house, it took me maybe 20 minutes. It was all done virtually the the person that was guiding me through it was live just like we are now walking me through every document is that that's like is 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 participating or just joining a clinical trial more complex than refinancing a house i mean i don't think so i think they should be comparable um so what's going on guys and maybe introduce yourselves hiroki and manchal please um one at a time or however you guys want to go go about it uh sure i i'll go first um my name's Roki. i'm one of the co-founders of butterfly labs and yeah i did i did used to work at microsoft um i think i just wanted to quickly comment on the dct thing from an outsider's perspective because that's also confused us like in our current kind of capacity we actually do uh we work in the diagnostics uh layer for telehealth and uh when i heard dct i thought it meant purely you know, everything's virtual, everything's at the patient home. And then I only, I only realized much later that the, the industry itself was, was far back enough that for them, even doing like a telehealth call was considered decentralized and just having multiple sites and using any form of technology was decentralized, which is completely like baffling to me because uh, I, I was, I, I, yeah, I was, to Robert's point, I thought it meant just like completely, there's just like sites don't exist with, which I thought was, I was like, is that really feasible? I mean, how do you do but you know what? The, <laughs> I don't know how it'll work. In fairness to you, we're all confused as well. And I actually think that your <laughs> thought, and Robert probably has the best opinion on this. I think sponsors actually want to do that. 
they just realized they couldn't so they pivoted like oh no we never met replacing side nonsense you guys are our partners you know but they really wanted to do that they just can't why because we spent an hour on on zoom talking about it patients they they trust their doctor they don't trust some ad or they don't trust they definitely don't trust big pharma i mean we all know that they'll trust microsoft before they trust big pharma um <laughs> am i right here robert i mean feel free to like disagree with me no i i dan you know i'm the first one <laughs> that'll disagree with you but uh I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you in this instance. I mean, you know, taking, I, I think the industry got it a little wrong. And of course, COVID pushed this innovation, right? So you can't remove the brick and mortar site altogether. I think the intention uh, uh, from a sponsor perspective, and even I think all of us on this phone call, we all want to ease the burden of those who are volunteering their time to advance medicine, right? Cliche, right? mushy, mushy situation. Okay. But it's true. You know, I have a high respect for those who are willing to go out of their way. And it's, and it's not always a groundbreaking therapy. It's not always clinical research as oncology based. And it's, you know, it's either I do this and I've exhausted all my other options and I have to try this or I'm going to die. That's not what clinical research is. Right. And that, that was the stigma attached for many, many years. And when patients who may not be insured and they have access to hypertension studies, blood pressure issues, liver issues, you know, obesity is a huge problem in our, in our country these days. And a lot of the comorbidities that go along with it, like diabetes. So those who are uninsured or underinsured and don't have access to therapies, it's critical for these people to be inclusive into this, into this landscape. Right. So our intention here was to be inclusive of all patients who may not be near a site. But like you mentioned, Dan, right? Patients trust their doctors. So the intention of DCT, at least from my perspective, was to ease the burden. Like if we don't need the patient to get in their car, waste their gas, arrange a babysitter, leave work and come to the clinic and sit in the clinic, wait to be called, you know, wait for the doctor, wait for the coordinator, wait for their labs to be drawn. Then they get their ECGs, actually ECG before the labs. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like that, that whole schedule of events, right, Dan? And like, that's, that's a lot of burden. It's a lot of time. It could be two, three, four hours, especially if they're doing a PK study, they could be there eight hours. They might be in a phase one clinic overnight for seven to 10 days, right? So the intention, I believe, was that, you know, we, we introduce technologies and AI where applicable so that we can, number one, speed up the study, decrease patient site burden, but at the same time, be more inclusive than exclusive. So I don't think you're ever going to remove that doctor trust relationship, like you said, but at the same time, I also think the DCT movement is designed to include patients in rural areas that don't have access to the mom and pa shops. You know, you're a perfect example, Dan, you're out in Yuma and, you know, imagine a person who lives, um, you know, 50 miles from Yuma, but you're the closest, you know, or uh, internal medicine facility. And like, what about those patients? Right. And so a DCT study that's using a virtual site model that has one PI on a 1572, those patients are not forgotten now. And you can essentially target them by them calling in to show. And you use all those technologies and tech like e-consent, video calls, telehealth, 
mail, couriers, you know, portable technology like ECG six leads mm-hmm. um, and all these different things to make them inclusive. But I think the whole intention around DCT is twofold. And I'll wrap it up with this. Number one, easing site and patient burden. And number two, being more inclusive of patients who otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity. So I'll actually jump in here with a data point. Robert, I don't know if this has ever been talked Introduce about. yourself. Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, perfect so, segue. <laughs> I, I'm Manchala. I'm the other co-founder here at Butterfly Labs. I do product and engineering. And Hiroki and I go all the way back to college, then Microsoft. and then Where'd you guys go to school? Uh, Claremont McKenna. Uh, so down here, a super small liberal arts college in, in the LA area. Um, okay. And right now, um, what we, we have a business in blood testing, right? And so we, we do, you know, hundreds of, you know, several hundreds of blood tests um, a month across the whole country. And we offer home blood testing as well as walk-ins, right? And patients can pick what they want. And you would think that like everybody would like go for the most convenient option, but people love to still walk in way more people walk in than we thought they would having both options on the table. Um, So just to your point, Robert, some people prefer that experience, prefer the higher touch going in uh, the more traditional experience. And then for some other people who are further away, yeah, it might make more sense to have someone go to the home. So I think both are there, but like, it's not like, you know, the most convenient option is the one that everyone gravitates towards 100% mm. of the time. Yeah. And I think, and I think Manchala, it's, it's a trust factor, right? It's all boils down to trust because if I'm a patient, I walk into my doctor's office I might see a different person who does my yearly labs every single time, but because they're in that brick and mortar environment, I I automatically have this trust because I feel like that person was vetted versus somebody who's knocking on my door, uh, ringing the doorbell dressed in scrubs, and they have this lab kit ready to collect your sample. Um, You know, I'm wondering if, and again, this is for the panel here. I, I mean, is that is that a considerable aspect of why people are choosing the more, you know, the more acceptable brick and mortar approach than convenience? I mean, at least from my perspective, being in, you know, health tech generally, and I wouldn't even say we're the best at this, but healthcare technology focuses a lot on making certain things more efficient. But I think what they forget is that to your point, so much of healthcare is trust and you know, the direct-to-consumer people have it right. Like they really focus on the experience, even down to the color, the fonts, the way people are introduced to new features, the way people are introduced to like the workflows and everything else. They really hold your hand. A lot of healthcare, I feel like they just kind of throw something at you and expect that it'll work. And maybe it works if you're like in an office and there's literally a person there to guide you through and answer your questions. But as soon as you're the only one at the home, none of that trust is there. None of that support is there. And then you get patients left in the dark uh, and, you know, to begin with, like a lot of times patients are not necessarily the most tech savvy, especially if you're looking at older populations. And so I think that disconnect between what is like, what makes things more efficient and like what makes things, what, what people will trust is, is pretty large. And I don't think there's enough of a focus on it in the industry, just like as a yeah, whole. I think, well I think pharma, you know, um, they may think something is convenient. Um, I'll use a personal example today and I have no option of going somewhere, but I was given a window, you know, we'll be here between eight to 10 a day to look at your AC. All right. Well, what if that window, sometimes that window is eight to 12. So if it's a matter of me getting a blood draw, I can, I have more control. If I just get out of my house and go, 
somewhere as opposed to sitting all day for an hour. I can't do anything. Like I can't leave, you know, just because somebody might show up. So I think there's a lot of that as well, besides the, the trust factor. Um, it's just, sometimes it is more convenient to just do it yourself. And there's a lot of people with that mentality. Like I'm going to go when I want to go. If I want to leave my house at 803, I'm going to leave at 803. I don't need to rely on somebody else to be here. That's actually one of the largest cited reasons someone will say that they don't want it. So all else being equal, we charge exactly the same amount, whether or not you go into a clinic yourself or you get it at the home with a phlebotomist, right? So economically, you'd think, yeah, at the home, but the number one most cited reason is actually exactly that. So, you know, even if they can somehow pick a time they want, there's a little bit of trust. They're like, are they really going to show up at yep. 11 a.m., you know, tomorrow? Or, yeah, I can just get it on the way back home from work, right? And for <laughs> them, it's just that, that's like, I feel like I'm in control. I'm in control, the driver's seat. Control, right? that's right. That's the big word right there, control. It really is. And I think a lot of these farmers are like, you know what? We want to be in control. So you're going to stay home and we're going to send people to your house instead. How about that? But I mean, it's all stakeholders, <laughs> right, too? Because like, why, why, why do sites feel disenfranchised, right? It's the same exact thing. Though. Sites yeah. don't feel like they're in control of any of their operations when they're getting so many e-thingies thrown at them as well. So Jeez. I guess, you know, it's, it's a generalizable issue where it's like when you take away control from an end user, they're not going to feel good about it. They're probably going to use your technology less efficiently. They're less motivated to help work through issues with you. So I think the worst thing is like if someone feels like they have control, but something doesn't work. They're more likely to come reach out to you and say, hey, like I have this problem. Can you help me? Can you help me fix it? What am I doing wrong? But if if the attitude is like, here, here's this thing thrown at you. You have no impetus, no say. <laughs> yeah. Then at that point, they're just like, I hate yeah. this thing. I have to use it. And then they're Trust never going to want to talk about it. Yeah. Trust, <laughs> Trust us. us. We're, we're Pfizer and we just made a comic book with Marvel. So you can trust us. All right, guys. <laughs> I, I've uh, been hearing about that. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But um, okay. So as two really sharp dudes from tech right <laughs> like why do you think why do you think our industry first of all is there another industry more behind than clinical research that you so, know of? i i want to say one thing here it's surprising because you know we're in healthcare right now provider healthcare right not 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 um clinical trials and in that space we, before we kind of got into clinical trials we didn't we didn't know anything about the space and healthcare generally was actually the poster child of like this is the industry that's kind of behind all the other industries you know like everything's so much more behind and honestly coming into clinical trials it seems like clinical trials is more behind than healthcare which is more behind than everything. It's like the flintstones it's, it's, it's definitely surprising <laughs> to us i mean there's a Why? reason for that too to Why? be to be fair to clinical research here, here's at least my theory right which is that you know people take risks or people take fewer risks, the higher like their, their own risk profile is. And so like, you're not going to want to compound the amount of risk you take. Uh, if you're like a small pharma or even a large pharma, you know, it costs a ton of money to do something and you want to do it correctly. Right. And so part of the reason that other industries innovate so much is because there are so many small players and there's so many startups that like, yes, some people will fail and some people will succeed, but you, you can, you can take a lot of those shots. There's a lot more shots on goal, right? Uh, you know, pharma doesn't want to take a lot of shots on goal. They want the one shot to go really, really well. Uh, and so it's kind of understandable that they'd be slower to adopt. And it's not exactly clear how that whole thing will be resolved. I think the other factor to keep in mind is uh, there's a lot more regulation too, right? So like the more regulation you're placing a higher burden on any kind of technology provider. And so they're going to have to recoup their own costs. Um, they're going to have to recoup their own costs through higher price points. So 
how we can enable faster adoption and more adoption and more willingness to adopt tools and through like kind of innovation arms or like structures like that, I think will be important for, for kind of accelerating adoption of, of new tech in the industry. The other thing I'd say is, right, and like I, I keep drawing parallels to healthcare, uh, between healthcare and clinical trials. And so, you know, somewhat similar, right, um, is everything happening in, in the space is actually really, really complicated. And everyone is kind of doing a really good job kind of making everything happen, right? Um, like, for example, in, in what we do right now with um, blood testing, there's obviously uh, you know, working with the lab, working with the patients, working with the phlebotomists, going to the, you know, people's homes, the supplies, sending them, all of that stuff, as well as the technology platform, right? But uh, when it comes to something like, you know, running a site, right, you obviously have you way more trials, way more patients, the complexity of what you're doing is, is, is a lot crazier. And I think that is a challenge, right? Or Robert, when you, you, you and us were talking about hey, this is like the Excel tracker for, for kind of getting started with, you know, with a study as a sponsor, right? Just the complexity of what's happening is much crazier than what's happening in a lot of other industries, the workflows and things like that. And I think, you know, I think it's also like, I think that should be taken into account and, you know, like, it's not like it's something really easy and, you know, the technology is still behind. You were saying there's a couple of things like, the dog food thing I want to get into. So let's not forget that. Let's come back to that. Tech companies, um, I mean, their job is to innovate, but you can argue the same. Like the bigger they get, the less innovations and the less shots they want to take because they don't want to disrupt themselves or give an idea to a competitor, right? So there are some similarities still. Yeah. I... They're... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, in some ways, but I think that the nature of, of tech is one where they actually understand in many ways that unless they're moving very quickly all the time, they actually will get just disrupted by a startup. I think it's much more <laughs> top of my, I mean, I, I don't think that Pfizer executives are sitting there going, oh man, you know, if tech fields just, if, they, if they're successful, we're, we're out of business, you know, but I think there's a real, real concern at even large tech companies with a lot of upstarts. So, I mean, the reason that you have these extremely large acquisitions in tech is because they understand the very real chance that they will get disrupted. And so they're willing to, to shell out a lot to buy potential competitors, uh, which I, I don't know if that happens too much in pharma, but I, I think it's it's definitely less. No, it they buy like they buy the biotechs. And, yeah, for sure. All right. That's that's a good answer, actually. Robert, you were going to say something. No, I think, you know, also in terms of like shots on goal, like Hiroki mentioned, right? I mean, the you got to keep in mind the failure rate of all the compounds in preclinical development that actually actually make it to, you know, phase two and phase three that actually get IND approval, right? Um, the failure rate is unbelievably high. Um, so we, we do take a lot of shots on goal. And I think that's where the risk tolerance comes from. You know, like Hiroki mentioned, you want to do things when you get the shot to do it, you want to do it right. And you want to do true, tried and tested proven methods. And I think that's where, you know, um, if we introduce this tech, is it going to go right? Is there, are there going to be issues? I mean, <laughs> I deal with, with tech issues every single day. I'm dealing, I dealt with one this morning for over two hours, um, we had one of our first patients complete the uh, open label and double blind portion of our study. And Congrats. man, that, 
Thank you. And that, and that system just didn't like that though. Right. <laughs> so it was a, it was a big, it was a big problem in terms of the, the tech side of, of hitting that milestone. Right. Um, so I think, it, I think it's, it's, it, there's so much money spent on getting a compound to a certain phase of development and it becomes kind of like your baby and you're like cradling this thing, you know, and you don't want to do anything that could potentially jeopardize the success of the, of the program. And I think, you know, again, it comes down to trust and, you know, how, how valuable has technology been? And, you know, do we, do we lean on it with positive outcomes? And sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, would that be an argument for any up and comers, say ourselves, perhaps to focus on earlier phase uh, trials as, as, as it relates to BD, just to kind of help build that trust earlier on when there's more shots or? No, I don't think so, Hiroki, because, you know, whatever tool or platform comes available, if it's proven true, tried and tested, you know, from a pilot perspective, maybe yes. Right. Hmm. But even even. Tar, you know, I, 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 I don't think so. I don't think it really matters because you have a lot of tech disruptors coming in with AI. Um, you know, I'll, I'll mention AI Cure, for example. They are a, uh, they're a company who uses your smartphone to install an app that monitors IP compliance. And, you know, we talked about opioid use disorder studies many different opioid-based studies, abuse deterrent extended release studies, maybe patients coming off of opioids for alternative treatments, and even for behavioral health studies, um, whether it's PTSD, um, schizophrenia, uh, schizoid disorder, whatever it may be, hmm. com patient compliance is very tough in behavioral health. And so they've come up with this tech to monitor the the patient compliance at the home. They hold up the pill to the camera. The camera AI identifies this compound, make sure it's right. You know, and you can't fool it. You can hold up a Tylenol and the thing will know. And then if there's any type of diversion, they immediately contact a real person in real time. And then your, you know, your phone's ringing as a patient, right? Or they do some type of, um, you know, adjudication of the video footage obtained of, of the IP. So, my point here is that it doesn't matter what phase you guys target, whether it's phase one, whether it's preclinical, whether it's phase two, phase three, or even phase four post-market surveillance. Um, a tool is a tool. And once it's proven to show value, that's all it really takes, I think, hmm. from you know whatever single stakeholder it may be. But I think you know, no matter who you target, it can be successful. Uh, Hiroki, you brought up earlier before we recorded something about dog fooding, right? Like you, the tech industry has this phrase, which is basically a beta, like forcing people. Maybe you can explain that because I think that does not exist in our industry. I think when they want to do a test, they have to spend millions of dollars to do a clinical trial. Big tech can just force people to do things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so dog fooding is a term that's used to describe uh, you basically test products on your own like employees before releasing them wow. uh, into the wild, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, on one hand, it leads to faster resolution and issues like bugs. Um, and so like, you know, your customers will get a better experience. On the other hand, your employees will rip their hair out because you're going to do something super annoying. Like, for example, when I was <laughs> 
at Microsoft. We were just using Teams earlier. And uh, I had to unfortunately be a dog food user of Teams at the time. And I got to say, just like as a caveat, Teams, you know, Teams are doing great. Like it's a good product now. But when I was using it, it was just, just being spun out of Skype at the time. And they had this feature. Oh, my gosh. So they had something like channels with Slack where you could where you, where you could where you could join a channel and you could talk to other people, but they forgot to add the feature to like turn notifications off and to leave groups. And so what happens? You get put into these groups with thousands of other people, and your notifications would just go on all day. And it was the most infuriating thing. Uh, there was a huge backlash, but of course, you know the benefit of that was you know now no customer has externally ever had, had that bug. So you know uh, what? You know, That's super interesting because I was what well, as. From when you said that about a half an hour ago, I was trying to draw parallels. And the only one I can think of in our industry are real world evidence trials and these virtual trials that they stopped doing. Thank God. They would go into Dot Robert, they would go into doctor's offices, pay them like five grand. They would say, Hey, we're doing a clinical trial. They're basically just putting a algorithm in their EMRs to track in perpetuity real world activity and then who knows who they're selling that data to the poor doctor got like five grand they think it's great they don't realize like these guys are making bank off of like your patients and -hmm. what's happened even if they're de-identified so that's the closest example i can think of of dog fooding in our industry one example might be you know if I don't know if this happens, so this is either a great idea or a very obvious one. But, you know, if you're a CRO and you own a site network, for example, and you, you're like, okay, you know what? Study startup is a huge pain um, because of this, this, and this reason, right? Like site initiation visits are hard to schedule, budgeting, contracting, whatever, you name it, right? Uh, we're going to go hire a team or we're going to have our team build a new tool. You know, I, I know there's Gobalto and Viva, but like, let's just say, you know, you're going to build a new tool. And you're going to say, I think this is going to really make a big difference. So the first thing you do is tell your site network because their hands are shut. Like they don't have a choice. They're like, you are going to use this new tool. (laughs) And then once we get this to a really good point where even our own internal stakeholders are like, yes, this is awesome. Then you go to the sponsors and say, look, we've tested this out on our own network. We know it works. It's, It's like people are people are loving it. And now you should either roll this out to your other sites or, you know, and maybe you go to other sites and say, hey, look, like this is the platform you should use. That would be like more analogous, I think, because you actually have some ownership over that specific organization and stakeholder class. That's a good point. But they don't that do is. that as far as I know. They, the CROs that own sites, they don't really. Maybe do they that. should. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, they, should. they don't they don't do it at the site level. But, you know, I did spend. um you know, nearly a decade on the CRO side. And I can tell you that when I worked at PRA, they, they, now I know this term dog fooded us with PSO. So those of you that are watching that know productive study operations, PSO, which was a Salesforce um, spinoff. And we were using, you know, Siebel clinical, which was an Oracle system. And they literally gave us a drop dead date. Like, Hey, we're shutting off Siebel Oracle, we're migrating all the That's data. Dog <laughs> yeah. So, see, so I, I didn't know it at the time, but I guess I've experienced this. And wow, the learning curve was absolutely astronomical. Everything was broken. Data wasn't migrated. Data was missing. The metadata from certain documents never came over. Things were lost. It was like, it was like, a, it was, it was pandemonium, right? <laughs> and so they had all these, like they sold it with, oh, there's all these wonderful dashboards and you can see all your site recruitment months and you can see all your metrics and your enrollment and your PSM, patients per site per month. And, blah. and like, there was all this upside, but like, 
man oh man so i yeah you're right i mean they, they do it dan but i don't think they do it you know trickle it down to the site network which mm-hmm. they, they should but i mean i guess it happens in every industry i just didn't know it at the time so yeah well, you're supposed to test it before you sell it so like hopefully what was happening is they, they actually tested this, and then they sold it to the sponsor not like they just sold a broken product oh, no, not in our industry. Like- they probably made bank off of that so oh, they probably did for, for oh study. yeah seven figures per study for that innovation which we kind of talked about before you know off off the air um so i mean you guys have been analyzing this space how long now you two like clinical research three four months it's not that long okay and what did you discover so far (laughs) i mean I mean, the two big problem areas, it's, it's you know, what, what you talked about earlier, right? I think the first one that we started out with um, kind of based a lot on conversations with Robert are around uh, just data management. It seems like there are kind of a lot of issues around, um, you know, the trials in progress. You're collecting data from all of these sites. Uh, this is obviously, you know, we're preaching to the choir here, but it takes a super long time for the data to, to come in from the sites and it's in multiple systems. And it's really hard to triangulate just what's happening from the sponsor's point of view um, across all of these different systems with patient safety events and things like that. Obviously, queries are being kind of tracked manually in emails and in meeting agendas and that kind of thing. So that was kind of one of the areas that we started out with. And then kind of moving forward, the other one that's come up is around uh, just, yeah, the study startup process. Um, and just, you know, it's, you know, it's, a you know, a, a big kind of uh, hornet's nest, but um, the project management of it, tracking all of the documents, the budgeting, the contracting, then like you mentioned, the IRB stuff. Um, so those are a couple of the things that we've seen, but, you know, we're kind of having these conversations to identify as many problems as possible. So yeah. if there are, you know, other ones that are coming to mind right now, we'd love to have them kind of. From what you've seen so far and the information you've gathered, do you feel like it's an industry worth <clears throat> worth exploring? Or do you feel like there's really no hope? Like this is kind of one of those <laughs> things will just continue how they are. I mean, innovations will come slowly, but it's really not worth getting into. I mean, it, I think there's like the financial and then there's like the philosophical slash moral slash ethical side of things. Like should people be interested in helping their fellow humans you know get faster access to better care like i think the answer is yes right okay but is uh, it but business a, is a business perspective i think yeah. The, yeah from the business perspective i think the biggest challenge is just that sites themselves don't typically have a lot of discretionary spending that they're able to improve their own processes with but it seems to me at least so far that a lot of the issues come from the fact that the way that the, you know, the system runs is through kind of more studies and uh, taking on more patients. And this obviously is great, but it also means that if everyone's kind of using different technology, you're actually reducing kind of the unit efficiency of the whole system. And so I think there's a problem where you want sites to really own the technology stack because ultimately they're the end users and they'll have the best insight into their own workflows and processes. But at the same time, they don't have enough spending, so they defer to sponsors. And sponsors' choices are not going to be holistic. They're going to be very focused on their own needs, which is totally reasonable. But then you end up getting this very fragmented ecosystem. And I think that, in general, for this industry to improve, you're going to have to work with a lot of tools where 
there's enough value over time that sites would actually be willing to pay for them, but you may not be able to give the enterprise AAA like every single feature out of the box at the beginning. And you have to be looking to be an, an interoperable player too. I think a lot of the a lot of the players in the space recognize the value of trying to be the entire platform. But I do think that that's actually to the detriment of everyone else because their fragmentation will continue at that rate. So I think, I guess to sum it all up, I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space just from the number of problems to solve. Like if you're a problem solver, you're gonna, you're gonna find a lot of interest in that. I think that there's a lot of inefficiency, which means that technology can actually materially provide 10X value and actually substantially reduce costs. And I think the real challenge is going to be can you find a entry point where it's both economically feasible for you to develop a product where your end users may not have the most spend, uh, while also being cognizant of the fact that if you're adding to the fragmentation of the market, you may not necessarily be in the best position in the long term because you're going to be competing on a platform by platform basis. And at that point in time, it becomes a race to who can build the most features. And, and unfortunately, in those cases, there are very few winners. And more importantly, it actually doesn't mean that the industry itself is going to be better. In some ways it will be, but it means a lot of the needs of more nuanced uh, end users will be ignored. So, mm. Very well said. I mean, you yeah. end up with Viva, Metadata, uh, <laughs> basically those kind of companies. Um, do you, I guess to end it on a positive note, and thank you guys both for doing this i mean there is innovation uh i forgot the name of it but google's ai can now predict how proteins will fold alpha fold right i think it was called something like that so in theory that's supposed to incentivize more trials you know more experiments more clinical trials so there's there's definitely innovations on the um science side but then when you throw in like the actual clinical research itself it's like a necessary evil that sponsor have to pay for. You've got this ecosystem sites. They have their own vested interest. They have a huge conference, SCRS, every year. Sites meet and they complain about. So it happened last week. <laughs> Did you go? No, I, I I will next year though. Okay, yeah, we had. I know some of our fellow colleagues from Latinos and Clinical Research went. They said they had a good time. Um, but yeah, you got all these little like fragmented ecosystems, all kind of making a, a living off of sponsors having to do clinical trials. Of course, it makes sense for sponsors. If they can like eliminate that, they can just go direct to patient. I mean, it doesn't take rocket science to figure that 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 would be good for them. I just don't think it's going to happen. So they pivoted with DCT now. It's like, oh, no, it's always been hybrid. Our sites are our partners, guys. <laughs> and uh, what do you guys think? Though? Are you bullish on innovation on the science side like do you think that's going to continue to drive activity i i i don't know if i'm the really qualified person crisper alpha I mean, fold yeah absolutely like i think that the innovation is is increasing and i think that it's really really incredible the 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 leaps and bounds that technology has has allowed kind of faster time to discovery for certain molecules um i think that like all innovation in the real world, there is a chain of stakeholders that needs to be brought together to make that innovation worthwhile. And I think that a lot of these innovations, while extremely valuable, will, will only have their true value known to the world when that chain can be brought together. So I would say any disruptive technology, like the internet was 
you know, LAN, I don't know, back whenever was like a series of interconnected computers at a specific company, right? Like whatever, right? And it wasn't until you kind of had the underground cables and you were bringing every single household on, on planet earth kind of connected that you really saw, wow, this is what the internet is, right? I think it's kind of the same thing. You know, it seems really amazing now. And then there'll probably be like a bit of a, uh, a big, a bit of a quiet zone where it didn't like the entire chain hasn't really recognized the value. And then finally, once, you know, you get the technology, you get the ability to get that technology really into the hands of patients quickly, then, then you'll kind of see like how much value that really added to society. Anyone else as we wrap up, by the way, we'll have links underneath um, for butterfly labs, right? Um, for oh, anyone else or to your LinkedIn, whatever you guys prefer. And to Robert's I'll, I'll find you guys on LinkedIn and put all the LinkedIn. So everybody reach out. Um, anything else you guys want to add? What are the kind of people that you want to meet? Like who are, who are they more sites or. Oh man, that's a great, thank you for asking that. So, I mean, we're really looking to help. Uh, focus on the two issues we mentioned before. So either data corroboration or uh, challenges of steady startup. If you are a head of clinical operations at a sponsor or you lead clinical operations team, or you are a uh, site owner or site manager at a site, we would love to speak with you. Happy to chit chat. We'd love to dive deep into your issues. And then hopefully uh, if you're interested in once we've kind of got all, all of our thinking together, we can work together to uh, bring something amazing uh, to, to you and your teams. Excellent. Robert, Manchala, any last words or calls to action or anything? No, I just, I, I love what uh, Hiroki and Manchala are doing. Um, I'm huge fans of theirs uh, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's enjoyable to, to just have them in the network. And again, if anybody within my network uh, wants to reach out, you know, and want me to connect you with Hiroki and Manchala, I'd be happy to. But, um, you know, Dan, thanks a lot for having all of us here today. And I think it's been a great conversation. I hope your audience finds value in what we've uh, had to share today. I hope so, man. I mean, I had I find value in this because we talk to so many. All we do all day is talk Zooms with research, other researchers. So when we get outsiders in there, especially outsiders that are like intelligent, like they come from tech. And it's obvious tech is going to be everywhere, except here for some reason. But, <laughs> you know, it's just like kind of a breath of fresh air you know to have these kind of conversations and dan i'd like to reciprocate because a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to the actual problems that you know sites and sponsors and so on deal with with technology study startup and so on the specifics may be painfully obvious and just not that exciting to you all but as outsiders this is just incredibly valuable to hear those things and even those kind of basic nuggets are really helpful in helping our industry kind of add value to yours. So we really appreciate everyone's time in the industry. Yeah, Final plug, yeah. this industry is super nice. Uh, I'll say- Nice, I, I, wow. I know, I know. You know, people are always like, oh, farm is so guarded and everything else like that. But I have found nothing but people who are willing to talk about their, their challenges and who are willing to just gain empathy, right? You know, this is, this is what it means to bring novel life-saving therapeutics to market it's not simple it's 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 an amazing and incredible process and uh i've just had nothing but respect for everyone i've encountered so far wow respect that's, awesome. that's good to hear i've never been in any other industry a little dabble in real estate they're not very nice there by the way but uh yeah I plan to read. I guess maybe we are nice maybe we are nice well thank you guys right. both i really appreciate Thanks, it go Thanks, connect Rob. with everybody on linkedin underneath this video and in the show notes don't forget to connect with them.
reach out, let them know you watched or listened. Like, subscribe, comment, share. Thank you, everybody. Thanks.